Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Get Into It with Gila. Today, I had the privilege of interviewing Michal Simon, who is a clinical social worker. And we had a really interesting topic that we wanted to cover. Um, Michal was telling me before we started to record that she sees that a lot of times parents are trying so hard to help their kids, but they're really controlling them. And then they are perpetuating their anxiety about a specific topic. And I see that all the time when it comes to feeding our children. So we had a lot of things to discuss regarding our children and ourselves, our own mental well-being, and how it could that could have to do with so many topics and also specifically having to do with food. So we had such a great interview. And um, just to talk a little bit about Today is December 16th. It's We're still in the midst of Hanukkah. Tonight's going to be the seventh night of Hanukkah. And um, last week I recorded an episode by myself just talking about some of the things that come up with Hanukkah. I've been talking a, a little bit about it on my Instagram. So if there's something, a topic that you want me to cover that has to do with Hanukkah or a holiday in general and the food or anything that's triggering maybe being around family maybe not being around family because of corona i think that it's important for you to think about what's triggering for you where the themes are in your life that are harder for you or easier for you or what makes it easier for you really focusing on your self-care and um i have recorded an episode with rena riser I think like almost two years ago about Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah and a self-care plan having to do with the holidays. So that could definitely um, pertain to any holiday. So just something to think about. And if you like this episode, go to my website, www.gilaglassberg.com to see more episodes like this. Please subscribe to the podcast as well as the YouTube channel and leave a comment, a review, share it with people who you think may benefit from it. Uh, have a great day and happy Hanukkah. Hi, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. I know you're going to love the content here because you will gain inspiration, powerful tools and insights, and valuable knowledge. If you want more of this, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or visit me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. I'm Gila Glassberg, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. I have come to realize by counseling many, many women that this work is much deeper and greater than food and body image. It's the bigger picture challenges we face of love, belonging, acceptance, what our true values and goals are, noticing them, addressing them, and gaining skills to move forward. If you have been struggling with what your life's purpose is, or you just feel stuck in general and don't know what's holding you back, this podcast will enlighten and inspire you to take action and move forward. This podcast is about other women in the 21st century who feel that losing weight will fix all their problems or somehow meet their unmet needs. Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Get Into It with Gila. I'm Gila Glassberg, registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. And today I have Michal Simon. Hi, Michal. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm so excited. Me too. Um, okay. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you live? Where do you work? And what do you do? Okay. Um, I'm an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. Um, I work in Cedarhurst, Long Island, in the five towns. Um, and I work with children, teens, and adults. Um, I specialize in trauma, anxiety, um, depression, relationship issues. Got it. 
Very cool. So what, what are you most passionate about? Um, I would say working with clients um, is my passion. Um, mm -hmm. And trauma is definitely a passion of mine. Um, I like working with complex trauma a lot. Complex trauma is when um, someone has had years of um, traumas. They could be little traumas. It's called little T traumas, um, usually from a caregiver um, or in their childhood environment. And then they're working on it as an adult or a young or a teenager. Um, I love working with parents. I work with children all the time. Um, I have a play therapy station over there um, with sand tray therapy um, and art therapy. Um, so I do, I find that my day is going between children and adults. And I love that change back and forth between sessions because it's so different, but you're still working with the human needs and you know, what everyone is going through. So I, I love that. So you kind of like see all different, like, yeah, know, like throughout a day, let's say I'd have eight clients a day. I'd be going from like a four-year-old to a 16-year-old to a 25-year-old, you know, mm -hmm. wow. and then all day. And I really wow. like it. And it's very different, but I it's, it feels the same in terms of the trauma work. And you so know, it's just a different modality. Right. That's so interesting. So, um, could I ask you, how did you like pick this as a specialty, if you don't mind me? Um, sure. Um, I, you know, like most therapists, <laughs> had been through things in my life. Um, and I found that the thing I found to be most inspiring about people is when they recognize that life is full of challenges and they use that for an opportunity for growth. Um, and I really just love working with that depth um, and it's inspiring to see people work hard on their life and work on self-growth and put that as a priority. Um, so I just really connected to it. That's beautiful. Did you, did you always want to be a therapist? Um, yes, I went into, I did a few internships in college and high school, like nursing and therapy, um, even alternative therapy, like massage therapy. I was, I did an internship at like Memorial Sloan Kettering in their alternative um, cancer center. So they do therapies there. And I shadow people and I'm not so into working with like the body in terms of like blood and mm -hmm. you know the nurses have to do so I really knew I wanted to be in the caretaking field um and then I always had a, a love for psychology so I just I knew it was right. the right thing I could relate to that because um yeah like I can't like I can't if I get a cut like I can't even see my like I'm really yeah. squeamish so like yeah um but yeah helping people is definitely a passion of mine as well yeah so so when we were discussing the podcast we were talking about different topics to cover and I thought it would be really interesting to talk about um enabling anxiety and too much control right so so could like I thought that that would be a really interesting topic in terms of intuitive eating and division of responsibility because I see that in my practice with adults, let's say that they're they're um, feeding and they're eating with too much manipulated as children, so now they're struggling yeah. as adults. But I also see it with children that that they're going through it right now that their parents aren't able to feed them well because they're either controlling them to stop eating or controlling them to eat. So could you speak a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so I see this in my practice all the time also. Um, I either see it on the, on the child end where a parent is coming, you know, bringing a child in even just to work on picky eating um, or, or I actually have a few adults um, who had some little traumas from 
um, forced feeding when they were younger um, and it kind of turned into an eating disorder. Um, that's not always the case, of course, mm -hmm. but it's just, I think what food is another representation for children of their trying to exert some autonomy. Um, and, you know, in terms of um, Eric Erickson's, you know, hierarchy of development, um, children between the ages of 18 months and I think the age of five, they have autonomy versus like shame and doubt. And when they can't get their autonomy, then they go to shame or they doubt their ability to make decisions for themselves. So it really impacts the psychology behind it. It's not just about the food. That's really interesting. So, so could you talk a little bit about um, a parent, let's say a, a child coming to you with anxiety because they struggle mm -hmm. with anxiety and you sometimes you'll see like the parent perpetuating that. Right. How does that work? So there's this, there's this concept um, that overprotecting um, and micromanaging um, enables anxiety. Um, and it's a hard thing for parents to wrap their head around and I completely understand because you care about your child a lot um, and you wanna make sure that nothing bad happens to them and you wanna protect them. Um, but when we do that, we are taking away the child's ability to problem solve um, and we're trying to protect them. And then that gives the child's anxiety or just the child's mind, the message that they can't handle difficult situations or challenges or develop a level of frustration tolerance that you know will happen in life because life is full of frustrations. And part of growing up is we have to learn how to deal with those and then be calmly problem solve. But if a parent is taking away those opportunities for decisions or just you know, taking away those opportunities to be in an uncomfortable situation. And then the child is just being, the, the mother or the parents is swooping in, or even a teacher is swooping in um, and saving the day, then the child doesn't have the opportunity for growth there. Um, and it's almost better to let your child make these small mistakes now um, and be comfortable with that and not have any shame involved in that. Um, and it's an opportunity for growth. So when a parent overdoes it from love mm -hmm. and a little bit of their own anxiety, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. um, then it's take, it's, it's really actually increasing the child's anxiety about their ability to deal with problems that come up in their life. That's really interesting. And it, like, it just makes like perfect sense, but I'm, as a parent, I'm thinking, mm -hmm. how do we know when we're overprotecting? I mean, obviously maybe like a therapist would say that, but lots of people don't go to therapy. Lots of people don't bring their kids to therapy. So how do we know right. when we're doing that? Yeah. So you could ask yourself, am I noticing um, stress or anger in myself, stress, anger, or anxiety in myself where I feel like I need to fix. Um, and I'm imagine. And so there's a couple things. The first thing is, am I noticing any reaction to myself? So am I stressed at all? Am I anxious at all about my child's issue that okay. they're having right now? The second thing I would think is there's this, um, in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, there's this um, cognitive distortion, which is sort of like a mind trick that your mind plays on you to make you think unrealistically. Mm -hmm. So it's called catastrophizing, or for children, I call it disaster forecaster, where you're imagining the worst case scenario. And since we're not always aware of our thoughts, we don't always know that we're thinking this way, but most likely you're imagining that the worst thing will happen with this child and his problems that he's having right now. And then you're trying to protect him from that. Instead of being present in the moment and figuring out like, if he's having this, this issue, maybe I could take a step back, be aware of my anxiety and let him sort of work it out and then give him the opportunity to problem solve. So you just sort of weigh how important is this issue and is it within his capability to actually try to figure this out on his own? 
So let, could we give an example of something that would be something that a child can figure out on his own and something that a child couldn't? Yeah. Um, let me think. I, I want to give an example of something that happened this morning um, <laughs> with my four-year-old. Um, so he, I was getting ready and he, um, and the older kids were out of the house. Um, and he said, he came into my room and he's like, oh, I found this toy and I'm going to bring it to school to show my friends. And I'm like, that's really sweet because opportunity for socialization and he's trying to show his friends something. And he's like, I took it from, like you mentioned, his brother's room. And instead of being like, you can't take things from someone else's room, put it back, right? Because that would be where me, I'm swooping in. I'm anxious that he's misbehaving, which really just to show you how the disaster forecaster or catastrophizing can jump a few steps ahead without my realizing, what I'm really afraid of behind this is my child is misbehaving, which means there might be something wrong with him, which means he might not be able to function in society when he's older. And it's my job to teach him what the right thing is to do, right? Mm -hmm. Discipline. Your child should be taught by your parent, right? Mm -hmm. But then I took a step back, which I'm not always able to do. And it, it's really a work in progress for everyone. Um, and I said, hmm, you took that from your brother's room. Do you think he would want you to do that? Do you think that if he found out that you took something from his room, how would he feel? You know, and I just, I just like laid it out for him and with questions, like open-ended questions for him to think about it. And he stayed quiet for a little. And then I came downstairs and he's like, I'm not going to take the toy because I think Menachem would be upset. And then he put it on the, the front hall console table. And I was like, wow, you're right. I think he would be. And that was very big of you. So yeah. Like I, I could have been like, no, no, no. I can imagine right. this, my other son very, being very upset about it. Right. You know, I can imagine all these disaster forecaster or catastrophizing scenarios. He might lose it. You know, he's mm -hmm. four, he might lose it at school. Instead of doing that, I just sort of posed the question to him so he could problem solve. And he did it. Wow. That's like, I'm like already uh, reacting to that because I'm thinking like, I wouldn't like, I really have to think about this because like if, if this was me and this would happen, I would be like, I wouldn't even no. I wouldn't even notice that thought process. I would just be like, "What are you right. doing?" You know, like put it. It could be because I was in the headspace of, right. of getting ready for this, but right. but um, yeah, it just came to mind. And and of course, you know, you don't have to get this right every time. And right. you could sort of look for different opportunities where you could catch yourself. But those opportunities are really growth opportunities for your child when you could catch yourself. Right, because I'm thinking like my my two year old takes a lot of my five year olds. Stuff. and then my five-year-old gets really upset my two-year-old can't he can't understand that obviously right he's too young for that probably right. like that right. problem up. right he's too he young probably for that. need that boundary of um he probably has to just put it back himself or it has to be taken from him and redirect right right so it's really right it's hard as parents like to know like what our kids can handle and what they can't like that's a and even like a four-year-old, like it would really probably dip maybe your four-year-old a little more mature. Right. Or he's, he's four and three quarters <laughs> or whatever, right, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Or you, you just know, like you, like as a therapist, you might know like, okay, he's capable of this or he's not like, would you say like a three-year-old would be capable of that thought process? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I don't think a three-year-old can unless you've seen that the child can, you know, reason that way. Um, and the other thing is you could try it. And if it doesn't work, then you just see that the child needs you to take it in redirection. 
Right. I was, I was just thinking that like in terms of, in terms of people who are going to be listening to this and what you just said, like autonomy versus shame and doubt. I was like, that's what we all like, even as adults, you know, like we're all like, let's say with dieting, right. With like food restriction. So like, I always say, I say this like a million times a day to my clients on my podcast, whatever, like dieting threatens like the most basic autonomy that we have, how we feed our bodies without food, Mm -hmm. we will die. Right. Right. So like, imagine if somebody was like, I mean, this, I, this probably does happen like in school, but if somebody was like, no, you can't go to the bathroom. Like you just went or like, you can't, there's exactly. So like that, the dieting says like, don't trust yourself. You don't know what your body needs. Right. So then, then we do have all this like doubt and shame about our bodies because dieting is telling us like, if I just cared enough, if I just tried hard enough, I could just not eat the pizza or I could just not eat the cake. And then what happens is obviously you do eat the cake or you do eat the pizza. Cause like, like dieting doesn't work. And then there's all this like horrible baggage. And, and speaking of the horrible baggage, you're reminding me that um, the definition of trauma is when you go through something difficult and you were helpless to stop it. If you went through something difficult and you helped yourself, and you were power, you were powerful as opposed to powerless. You actually aren't as traumatized because you're not stuck in that. But when a child, let's say, is being forced to do something and it's scary, the way the mother is or the father is, you know, acting because they're acting anxious and therefore a little scary mm-hmm. to the child, um, and then also they couldn't stop it. That's, I guess, how it could be formed. Really interesting. So, so before you were saying about like if we notice our own anxiety, right? Um, yeah. that we might be is, is that like a transference thing like we automatically transfer that yes um, so there is this um, clinical psychologist in Manhattan named Dr. Shafali Tabari and she created this um, I guess school of thought that is called conscious parenting she has two books I believe at least two um, called the conscious parent and then there's the awakened family um, and the idea is that if you can be a conscious parent it means that you can be aware of the triggers in yourself as a parent and you, you start to note and be aware of why your child's, um, I guess, independence seeking or defiance <laughs> um, mm-hmm. is triggering you and then why you're trying to then control it. So it's about being mindful and present with your own feelings and thoughts as a parent. Um, and I think one of the most valuable things a parent can do, of course, not everyone can go to therapy, but you know, it's, I love working with children. And I think that some children, of course, children need therapy as well, but for in certain cases, but if a parent can go to therapy to work on their parenting and the triggers that their children cause in them um, or bring up in them, then that's the most valuable thing you're doing because you are then creating this stability in yourself that you can create a home of stability for your children and for your yourself and your whole family. Um, so what Shapali Tabari says is that when it's not a matter of the children's defiance, it's a matter of what is it triggering in the parent that they need to be vigilant now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have an example that I often think of from her book. I read it years ago, but um, this always sticks with me. Is like, if you, um, it's you know in the morning and your child is getting themselves dressed and they pick something quirky to wear, like an outfit that's a tad off mm-hmm. <laughs> or you just don't agree with it. Or whatever it's not your let's, style. Let's, what what age is this child by the way let's just um i don't remember because i read it okay. a while back but let's say eight um and or even older mm-hmm. um and, and or younger 
<laughs> really at any age, I would say this example you know, comes forth. So the child puts on something a little quirky, right? Instead of, instead of feeling, um, instead of reacting with, um, no, you have to change that. You have to, you could try to be aware of what it's bringing up in you. So it might be bringing up an insecurity in you um, that the child will look weird and then people will make fun of him or people will think he's strange and then he'll have a problem socializing and then he won't be liked by anyone in the class. And you see how I'm going to the next, the next, the next fear. Or people will think, will judge you as the parent. That's a good one. Exactly. That's a good one. Or they'll judge me as a parent that either I'm not attentive and I don't get them dressed well or, Mm -hmm. um, or that. I'm weird because he's being weird, <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. it is. Right. Um, parents usually aren't aware of how it triggers them. Mm-hmm. And so if you then control the child in that moment and you make him change, then you're really reacting from your own worry or your own anxiety or your own insecurity from your childhood of not fitting in in some way. Right. Um, instead of letting the child express themselves and hopefully, you know, they'll notice that no one else is wearing something like that or they're a little quirky and that's just who they are. Right. You know? Right. Now I know that's hard. That's a really good example. Yeah, because it probably comes up for people and it's probably also hard, let's say, I would say in some small communities, like the kinds that we live in, Mm -hmm. um, people feel extra pressure. Um, I feel like in in communities where people are similar to each other, like religious communities, there's extra pressure than in a random community that doesn't have that same type of lifestyle for everyone. Um, So there's pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could do the same thing I did with, you know, the four-year-old and the, taking the toy. You could pose it and be like, maybe later. You could be mm-hmm. like, oh, do other people wear that? Just, just posing the social right. question of relatability. Right. Letting the child think about if he's being relatable. But right. otherwise, like, let the child express themselves. What are gonna, right. You can ask yourself, what are going to be the consequences of my child? What's really going to be the consequences right. of my child wearing that funny thing? As it, it, it happens to be an excellent example because I'm thinking this is what I'm thinking but whatever I want to hear your thoughts like is there is there is there like um a boundary with that or like a limit like what if somebody what if your child's wearing like a yellow shirt with like flip-flops in the winter you know what I mean like a, you know that's, what I mean? that's the first one that you're bringing that up I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing that up because there's another book um called love and logic um I could actually look at the author's name it's right behind you over there if you want but no no um, I'm, I'm gonna get the names of the books and then I'll put them in the show sure notes. so love and logic um there's a concept in there that I remember also clothing related which is what if your child what if it's the middle of the winter and your child refuses to put on a coat right right so mm-hmm. according to to this book it was saying that you want to teach your child to learn from this lesson instead of right. forcing your child to wear the coat so you let the child go one day and not be afraid of that, you know, old wives tale that a child will actually get sick from going right. out the cold. Right. Of course, there is some validity to that, but right. but just in terms of the immune system. Um, mm-hmm. But but basically, you just let the child, you know, suffer for that one day and hope that they learn the lesson from it. It's so interesting that you're saying this, by the way, even though like this is so not what we were meant to talk about, but it, it obviously was because it definitely parallels with like the food, like a hundred percent, which I which I yeah. want to say in a second, but. Um, I really, I really do want to think about this because I, I am that type of mother. That's like, like, I mean, with my first, I was much more insecure about it, but like, let's say my son's too, like, you know, when you go out and like, everybody's like, he's not wearing any socks, you know? Um, and like, (laughs) you're like, I know, like he took them off. Like if he was cold, he would cry. Cause like, that's how babies express themselves. 
she's freezing. She's freezing. I'm like, she's not freezing because she'd be crying, you know, like. Right, right. The child um, would express if they're uncomfortable. That's a right. good point. Exactly. Yes. And that's, so how, so how I would want to, let's say, let's say I'd want to parallel that with um, something with food. So I actually mm-hmm. just talked about this on a podcast that I put out yesterday. I was talking about Hanukkah and latkes and donuts. That's, that's mm-hmm. what I was talking about. So I was saying that my, my seven-year-old, my almost eight-year-old daughter, she went to like a Hanukkah party a few, maybe last year or two years ago. And she came home and she's like, my stomach really hurts. I'm like, well, what did you eat? And she's like, I had two donuts and two latkes. <laughs> and like, I, I, I promise old Gila, like five years ago, Gila before intuitive eating and health at every size, I would have been like panicking, like, oh my God, she eats so much and blah, 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 all that noise. And I was just like, oh yeah, like a lot of, like sometimes when we eat a lot of oil, like it could sit in your stomach and it could really hurt your stomach. And now like when she, when she's at a place where there's like oily food, she's like, mommy, how much food do you think I should eat that would hurt my stomach? Or like, and I'll ask her like, well, how much did you eat last time? Or what do you think about this? Whatever. And like, it's, it's amazing to see like when they, when they have that autonomy, they have, you see them trying to make good choices uh, like, but not from like, not good choices, meaning like diet choices. I mean, good choices, like what feels good in their own body. But, but what I like, I would really like for you to explain or, or like, until I learned about this, I never would have believed that, that it was true. I, I would have thought like kids can't make their own decision or even adults, like we need to have more boundaries, let's say, but but really like I am a big believer in structure and consistency and following through on consequences. So it's not a free-for-all in right. any way, shape, right. or form. It's right. more that when the when the situation would cause but when there's when I realize that I'm exaggerating the um, con- the negative consequence that can come out of giving my child this independence, when I realize I'm exaggerating that, I will take a step back and let them decide. But if I have to intervene which is most of the time I would say I right. do. Right. So sometimes, so meaning you just said most of the time we do have to intervene. Right. So, so yeah. Like, let's say, like, let's say with food, right? So, mm-hmm. so the, the model that I use with kids is division of responsibility where the, the parent decides the what, the where, and the when, and the child decides how much and if any, and then there are boundaries within, within those boundaries, which are that the child has to be offered food every two to three hours. Some people even say every one to two hours, depending on the age, and that there always has to be a safe food around, mm-hmm. a food that you know your child will like, right? So there's a lot of boundaries in there. Yeah, which is good. Which is good, but then outside of that, you're sort of like, you're really letting the child make the choices. And be in touch with what their body is saying to them. Right, so so like, let's say with, with other things, let's say not with food, where would we, like, what is, I guess like, this is really general, but where would we have to intervene and where would we not have to intervene? Like, how do, how do we know that? Um, so of course with safety, you have to intervene. Um, also like, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but like if, if one child, you know, between children fighting, um, yes, it's okay to let them work it out, but once it gets physical, which is very common with siblings, you have to protect the one that is getting hurt, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, it's, it's general. So I'm trying to think like different areas, like homework. Right. Um, it's really up to the parent, but I would say that if you notice that your 
what you're over managing or you you have to do a lot of legwork um, to do something, it's better to have the child learn the consequence in the moment. So let's say with homework, if your child is putting up any fight about it, not any fight, but whatever, if you're, if it's going, it's becoming a battle of wills, mm-hmm. um, I would say it's better to, um, depending on the age of the child, like you could say something to the teacher and just say like, he doesn't really want to do his homework. Is there any way for there to be a natural consequence in school? Because it's not really a matter of the home. It's a matter of school. Um, you just sort of like let it play out. And another fear that parents have often is my child will fail <laughs> academically. Um, right. I always use this when, I, when I'm teaching um, catastrophizing and disaster forecaster, which is like, I do a lot with like, let's say teens who are teens or um, preteens who are anxious about school. So I'll be like, so you're nervous about this test. Um, and then you're imagining what? So they're like, I'll fail the test. And then what? I'll fail the whole year. <laughs> then what? I won't graduate high school. Like they realize how silly it sounds mm-hmm. um, once we're doing and then what? And then what? Or what right. if? Right. Um, so as a parent, if you're noticing that you're trying to overprotect to avoid the what, it, the then what of, at the end of this, which is my child will fail out of school, mm-hmm. try to just take a step back. And, and when you see... See that this is the thing. If we're trying, if we see a child um, going against us in terms of like fighting, or um, you know just refusing, then that is a sign to tune in to what am I fighting against my child that is really maybe coming from a trigger of mine. That's mm-hmm. really the telltale sign of are we having a battle of wills? Is there a control battle going on? If that's the case, am I not? present and grounded and listening to what my child needs right now versus am I letting my anxiety take over? You know, not versus, but I'm saying, can you, am can I letting you, my anxiety? Can you repeat yeah. it so that, yeah. so that I can know and like when we need to check sure. in? Yeah. You want to check in when you notice that you're, that you're getting into a fight, like a battle of wills with your child. And there's a control battle starting where you're saying one thing and they're saying the other thing. And it's usually a sign that you're pushing or trying to control too much and you're pushing against a child who's trying to establish his autonomy about something. And if you keep fighting, what's gonna happen? It's gonna blow up and you're not gonna get anywhere. That's usually how it ends up and no one thinks about that, but that is how it ends up. Right. So right, right. if you could take a step back and think about, I'm trying to control something right now, probably because I'm anxious. Mm-hmm. What am I anxious about? Most likely you're anxious about the worst case scenario. Your child not coming to school with homework one day or even for a week or even for a few weeks that are you able to control that really? Not really. You have to like let the child come to school with no homework. You could check in with the, with the teacher and see, mm-hmm. you know, I'm noticing my child is refusing to do homework. What can we do about this? Can mm-hmm. you do a consequence in school or a chart in school? Mm-hmm. Not a bad consequence, just something right. um, or encourage him in school. Right. But if you're, if you're, if you're butting heads with your child, usually you're getting triggered. And you're not hearing, that's where the consciousness comes into, or, or like the mindfulness with eating also, is you're not hearing, um, well, parenting though, you're not hearing what your child really needs right now. So I, I have an example that is coming to mind, um, which I'm not sure, because I, I was, I had some mindfulness, but some triggers probably, let's say, like, let, let's say yesterday, my son like came home and he's like, I want to have a play date. And it happens to be, I had like, I had some other kids over because, um, 
whatever I was, I was watching my friend's kids and one of the kids is my son's age, a girl. He wanted to have his friend from school over. So I said, okay, sure. I'll also invite your friend over. Like I just really wanted him to be occupied and happy for my own benefit also. So, so then I, so then by the time the other mom said, yes, he said he already switched. He wanted a different friend. So then, but the mom brought over the friend, which was so nice of her. And she was like, and then my son's like, no, I don't want to play with him, you know? And I'm just like, I was so frustrated. I was like, I'm trying so hard to give him what he wants or what he needs. And I, I definitely noticed like, like, and I was like trying so hard to like, like get in touch with myself and like, think about all those, like how to talk so your kids will listen and whatever. And I was like, okay, he, he could be upset. Like he's allowed to be upset. But then I was like, I was frustrated because I was like, maybe I was trying to fix the situation too much. Right. What do you Were think? you also like reacting out of worry that he'll, he'll just reject that friend in front of him? Like was, what ended up happening? That's my question. Also. Yeah, probably. I was also thinking like, I, like his friend just came over and now he's being so mean, you know? Um, what ended up happening is that he went into the other room by himself and he's like, no one's playing with me. And I'm like, I'll play with you. Like, I just felt so bad. I'll do the puzzle with you. And then I was like, you know what? He could, like, I did everything I could do. He could be upset. That's what I thought. And then eventually he was upset. Like he was moping in the other room. And then eventually he came around and I I was like, wow, I really just, I just went into panic mode. I just became my inner, I just accessed my inner child. I just like, I I was aware of that on some level, you know? That's great. Yeah. So, right, because really, um, he, Dr. Tsabari, she really does point out that the anxiety or the trigger that we are having is coming from our inner child insecurities that we didn't work through or that we suffered with. Um, right. So let's say the person who's trying to control what their, their child is wearing probably felt like they didn't completely fit in growing up, you know? And so like that's being triggered from their own inner child experience. Right, that example is actually really, I'll tell you why I find that interesting. Cause like probably one or of two things could happen which you already said, but let's say a child um, is very socially aware and they wear something socially off and they go to school and they pick it up and they change the next day, they realize, right? Right. Um, so so that's one option. And let's say they they pick it up, but they're, they're fine with it. They're fine with being different. And- yeah. And the parent could either, you know, shame them inadvertently, or they could be like, I love your style. You're so unique. A lot of kids Mm -hmm. become really socially, like, very well accepted when they accept themselves. Like, they don't always become like the social outcast just because they're different. Sometimes when I I feel like, like the people who I know who are like that, and they're confident about that are always like the most popular people. Yeah. And yeah, it's a very good point because it, it's a very like physical example, but really what matters is the child's self-esteem underneath all of it. Um, so with, if you don't shame and you just encourage a child to pick their own things in general and let them be their own unique self, then you're tuning into what your child is expressing and, want, and wants, um, and you're just instilling self-confidence, which is wonderful. And at the end of the day, yes, there is a concept of fitting in socially, and that's important. Um, but sorry, phys- fitting in physically, and that's important. But more important is that your child has a self-confidence and then chooses healthy friends or right. chooses people who value them for who they are. So right. the confidence you instill in your child will help them seek healthy relationships when they're older or even as a child with their peers. Right. So that is, you know, of most importance. 
Right, because sometimes a child will dress like weird or do something odd because they're not getting a need met. Like they're not getting attention. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Also looking for negative attention. Right. That's true. Right. So I'm just saying like that could even be like a rebellious thing. Like not not yeah. not even consciously, but like like the same thing with food. Like a child, a child who's let's say forced to eat might mm-hmm. like dafka, like just stop eating. Or a child who's like forced to stop eating candy, you will definitely almost definitely rebel. And yes, that is because um that is a combination of two things, like you're saying. It's the seeking negative attention because if a child's not getting enough positive attention or they're getting more attention for the negative behaviors than they are for the positive. Right. And they'll, they, a child wants attention from the parents. They right. want interaction and engagement. So right. let's say, um, I'm going to give an example, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, and I'm not saying in the judgmental way, but let's say you're on your phone and you're texting and then all of a sudden, or whatever, and you're around your children. And then all of a sudden your child does something they shouldn't have done, or like you're not happy with all of a sudden you look up from your phone and that's when you give the attention. Right. So your child is like, uh-huh. <laughs> if I misbehave, that's how my mother pays attention to me. So that just happens. They're looking for negative attention. Right. But at the same time, you it's either that or it's them trying to be autonomous and independent. And then they're seeking, they're testing the boundaries and seeing if they're allowed to have a voice. So oh, like yes. it could be either one really. That is isn't that like the nurtured heart approach where like you don't react like we almost don't react at all when there's negative behavior because like yeah it's called active ignoring right that's hard it is it really is and you ask yourself like is it is it worth responding to this is anyone really in danger what's the consequence really going to be if i don't pay attention to this it'll probably be fine then yeah i'm not going to give it negative attention right I mean, I didn't actually read the book, but my sister-in-law, she, she was explaining it to me and she was just like, think about when you, when your child like does something wrong and you just like are so animated, like even like, you know, I, I mean, I've heard this. I don't, I, I haven't, I haven't heard it in my office, but I heard what it. What is just, the book? The nurtured, the nurtured heart, heart approach. Hmm. I don't think I've read it. I mean, I don't think I've heard of it. Okay. So th- that's like where you just, right. You just ignore, um, you, as much as you can negative behavior and you praise like a ton for positive behavior yeah so what I was going to say is that I've heard um that like kids who aren't like touched enough let's say like they don't have enough physical touch positive physical touch like they'll they'll even like look to be hit because they need yeah they need contact they need physical contact which is like so heartbreaking and so sad wow, yeah but it's the same yeah. thing with like the negative attention like if a child's getting zero attention for the positive then they, they're just likely to look for negative attention. Yeah. And also um, it's important to note that when I say positive attention and praise, um, there's a concept from parent-child interaction therapy, um, which is that it's not just praise, it's labeled praise. So you wanna label the thing you're seeing and not just praise the child with these sort of open-ended compliments, like you're amazing, you're so smart. Mm-hmm. It's more like, I love how you put the red block over the blue block. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Mm-hmm. So like you're giving positive attention for something they did um, with their own abilities and strength. Um, so you just label it. You give specific information with your praise. The thing so that like, more. right. The thing that like, I that's really like has hit me hard with all the parenting stuff that I've learned is that 
all this stuff makes like perfect sense in theory, but like in action, it's like, it's almost like impossible. It, it really is hard. It really is. Right. It takes years to work on picking up on what's being triggered in you. Right. And then combat that and then responding appropriately. Right. By that it's time your kids are, are married and. <laughs> yeah, it depends how early you work on it. I always find that like, like whatever a child, the first child was going through is not the thing, same thing that the fourth child is going through. Right. Um, and you just keep on working at it. Right. And it's really, it's really a lot of it is about consciousness and, and mindfulness of being present and being aware of what's going on as opposed to being stuck in your cycle of thoughts. Mm-hmm. The thing that, that like hit, like hit me the most is that like the, like the inner child work, like a lot of times, like what you're saying, a lot of times, like when we're triggered by our kids or like, let's say the example with my son, like I was just trying so like, I just, I wanted praise as a mother. Like I wanted mm-hmm. positive reinforcement for my son. Like, good job, mommy. Like you got me a play date, but like, that's not what we yeah. get as mothers. So yeah. we have to, we have to give it to ourselves and be like, you did everything like to, literally to myself you did everything you could your child is safe you met his emotional needs and he's allowed to be upset which yeah, which exactly. like which which is which is by the way like one of the most powerful tools I could give my clients because 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 the food um is what they like they feel this right like let's say the example of yesterday I would feel so triggered by my son and then I, I couldn't I, I didn't know why or I haven't worked on this thing so I couldn't identify it so I'd just be like where's the cookies and that's, and so I will, right. I'll, I'll say to my clients, like, can you sit with the discomfort yeah. that your son, even though you work so hard, your son is still upset. Can you sit yeah. with being upset and even for right. five minutes? And also to take the, the shame away um, for yourself and your inner child of like, you did what you could and you did a good job. This is right. out of your control. It's not a reflection of you. Right. So that's, I think that that like the main point is that like, it's not really about the outcome at all. Right. Yes. It's not about winning. Right. That's the hard it's part. about attunement to yourself and then your, and your child and separating those right. many times. Right. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So do you, is there anything you want to leave the listeners with like specifically? Um, let me just see. I, wrote a few things down that I wanted to say. Um, Well, one thing I did want to say also is that like if you, if you give your child that opportunity to like make the decision themselves, you also want to, you're also just giving them the message that they can handle it. Um, And often I find like, let's say a child has separation anxiety, then the parent also often looks nervous, yeah. you know, because Definitely. they're worried about their child also. Right. Like if you can, if you can, you know, have that confidence and that calm, I always say you want to, you want to be the calm you wish to see in your child, you know, mm-hmm. and it's very hard. And one thing I found to be very helpful um, in parenting, as well as just anxiety for adults and children is that when we're anxious, our mind and our body is racing and we go into fight or flight mode, our blood is pumping, the blood flows to your extremities. You can either punch, Mm -hmm. bite, kick, run away, um, and you're not thinking straight. So if you can slow things down, I almost imagine it's like everything's on fast forward when you're anxious, but if you can slow-mo and just slow it down and imagine that everything that you're seeing and doing is actually slowing down, 
then you can tune into the, the little hints here and there that you're getting from the environment or your child or your child's face, right? How often do we not look at our children's face and also go down to their level and see what's going on for them because we're so wrapped up in the chaos of our mind as well as what's going on in the home with little children or just many people or your work stress that you've taken. So just slowing down so you can tune in and calm down and realize you're not in a dangerous situation even though your body's acting that way. Um, and just look, like look at what the situation is and look for opportunities for growth and letting go. Um, yeah, and treat uh, yourself well. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's been like something that I suggest a lot. Like, can you journal for five minutes? Can you meditate? Can you put on relaxing? Like, I really like um, binaural beats. That's like mm -hmm. relaxing music. Um, like, I, I got it on YouTube. Like, it just, I don't know, it really does slow my brain. Or or even like, I happen to love like going for a bike ride, like going exercise, like getting the yeah. adrenaline out and then like looking yeah. at the water, like anything. It's, it is really hard when you're in the, when you're in the physical anxiety like, and your body is literally telling you something dangerous, like yeah. you, I feel like you need to have like a cue, like yes. figure out what your cue is that would slow your body down. Usually noticing where you, you could ask yourself or I do this in therapy where you figure out like, what is that physical cue of what, of, of my knowing that now I'm in anxious mode? Cause you mm -hmm. can't always know it cognitively, but you can right. figure out if you get in touch with your body feelings, you know, oh, I'm in anxious mode. Or like, I know I'm about to yell at someone because now I'm angry. And when I'm angry, I get a buzzing headache. Or when mm -hmm. I'm nervous, like I feel uptight and I get tingly feelings on my skin. Different things like that, people are not even aware of happening to them. If you can tune into the body, then you usually could then hint to your mind that we're, you know, my anxiety is overactive right now and I need to slow down. And breathing is huge because with the fight or flight reaction, since your oxygen is compromised because it's going to your extremities, you're not in equilibrium, <clears throat> not in equilibrium. So if you can breathe, you're restoring equilibrium so your mind can think clearly. Right. I tell that to my clients also, like, like they get, because, well, there's a lot of reasons, but because like dieting sort of turns off your hunger fullness cues, because it tells you what to uh -huh. eat, when to eat, how much to eat. So right we have to like almost like reinstate that but then there's like all this confusion between like is this physical hunger is this emotional hunger and one of the ways that like somebody's able to figure this out is to literally identify like what does hunger feel like in my body mm -hmm. what does anger feel like in my body what does what does frustration are you confusing them right and and it's so, something bothering me now Right. So you, you, you really have, you do have to know what the signals are because otherwise you can't really respond accordingly if you don't right. know what the, so, so who's ever listening to this, obviously no shame and no guilt and no, you're not going to listen to this and then know the answer. Like it's going to be yeah. a practice and you're going to, the more that you're able to like listen to the cues and then give your body what it needs, the more like body trust you'll get. Yeah. I don't want people to think that I have this mastered. <laughs> It's like, no, I know the skills, yeah. but I work on it all right. the time and I mess up all the time. And that's right. very normal and human. Um, it's just about getting right back on the horse and trying again. Right. And then the more you do it, the more like the, like the, the signals become clearer. Yeah. I really see that the more I worked on something, it clicks in and I can catch myself quicker. Right. Yeah. Um, Okay, great. So this was awesome. Um, could you just tell, tell the listeners where they can find you? Um, so, well, I guess my number also. <laughs> sure. Um, 
So I have, um, my number is 516-986-8202. I also have a profile on psychology today. Um, my office is in the five towns in Cedarhurst. Um, and yeah. Thank and you're, so taking, you're taking new clients? Um, right now, not. <laughs> I'm full right now, um, but things change. Someone can, you know, finish up and graduate their therapy. So it's worth a shot to ask. Otherwise, I would refer to another, you know, another therapist that I trust. Okay, great. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you so much. Sure, have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for being here on my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what intuitive eating is, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or follow me on Instagram at Gila Glassberg. Thank you so much. Have a great day.